Hello and welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that knows that if a revolution does not liberate women, it is no revolution. Today we have Zoe, Ambria, Helen, Lolita, and Hope. Full house. Yay! Yay. Uh, if anyone did not know, Hope just had a baby and is now back from her podcast maternity leave. All right. <laughs> we are building a coven army. Yes. <laughs> my, my husband is hanging out with the baby, which is, uh, this is great timing because I didn't know this till I had one, but this is like the witching hour for babies and their horrible nightmare monsters from like oh. 5 p.m. to like 8 p.m. So I was like, I have to go do the podcast and just do it <laughs> so this recording time is excellent thank you husband (laughs) Um, today we're going to be talking about Los Sandinistas Um, if anyone has not seen it yet it will be airing on PBS March 3rd which we'll talk about more later how you can watch it before we introduce our guests I wanted to give a short synopsis slash history of the film and events portrayed Um, most of this I took either from the film itself or from the film's website From 1912 to 1933, Nicaragua was occupied by the U.S. Marines who trained the Nicaraguan National Guard Army under General Somoza Garcia. General Somoza Garcia took control of Nicaragua in 1936, and his son later began ruling Nicaragua in 1967. The Somozas repressed political opposition and amassed vast wealth in the face of Nicaragua's extreme inequality and poverty. Mm, Sound familiar to anything? (laughs) Sure does. In spite of the danger, many student, labor, and political groups formed underground to fight for change and equality in Nicaragua. Women's lives began to transform as they started participating in the growing resistance, which ended up having a larger percentage of women combatants and leaders than any past revolutionary army, which is probably why they ended up winning, but we'll get to that later. La Sandinista's film focuses on the women who shattered barriers to lead combat and social reform during Nicaragua's 1979 Sandinista Revolution and the U.S.-backed Contra War that came to follow. Once again, sound familiar? Oh, my God. The women had to overcome gender barriers and leave their families in order to go underground and lead the rebel troops. After the war ended, their male peers took over in leadership and doubled down on women's oppression. It's now 35 years later, and the Sandinistas are back in the streets fighting for equality once again. So this documentary features an engaging mixture, I thought, of incredible interviews with women who were leaders, um, the actual women sort of talking about their experiences, um, they who were going into combat against a dictatorship, and then it's also mixed together with old footage and photos. Yeah, it's super amazing, and today we have an awesome guest joining us. She's a triple threat who directed, edited, and produced the film. Welcome, Jenny. Hi, thank you guys. Yay. Happy to be here. Thank you for being here. Yeah. Um, do you want to introduce yourself and explain how you decided to make the film? Yeah, so so my name is Jenny, and uh, Jenny Murray, and I directed Las Sandinistas, and uh, as you kindly noted, edited and, and uh, produced as well. Um, it was a, quite a process, as you guys probably noticed while watching. Uh, it was filmed over a number of years, and I gathered archives for a lot of years as well. Uh, and it was the first documentary I'd ever made. Wow, uh, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. It was. I was working in finance, actually. Um, yeah, we graduated from school, from undergrad. I, you know, my family had a lot of debt. And so 
I felt that it would be impractical to go to the arts. I didn't really ever think I could do that, especially as a woman. I didn't really know that many female directors that hadn't come from wealthier, you know, a background where they had support on some levels. So it never seemed like something I could do, but I loved films so, so much. And um, yeah, it, while I was working in finance, I was really, it was really tough for me. Um, I saw a lot of movies, uh, but it was uh, a part of my life that wasn't, yeah, it just wasn't the, the work I wanted to be doing. And uh, my dad died very, very suddenly uh, at age 57, which was like 2013, right before I started. Um, and he died in like massive debt and working. And uh, my mom had died many years before. And, um, you know, and my dad would have been a, a Trump supporter and was a really a wonderful man in a lot of ways, like a really good dad. Uh, but I really watched him struggle a lot, like my whole childhood. And it was just a, I really think he was a great guy. And um, so, yeah, a bunch of things kind of came together and it felt like for the first time in my life, I would be able to, because of life insurance money, not much, but enough to survive for the first time that I would be able to make a choice sort of about my living. And I'd saved up some money in finance and I'd been researching uh, Nicaragua since college a little bit. Like I studied Latin American film and history and culture and, uh, you know, like, yeah, just different historical moments while I was in school. I was really lucky to have some good teachers and uh, in undergrad. And so then, yeah, after I I'd started sort of researching about Nicaragua because a friend of mine was working on the border down there and I was interested in visiting and I'd made my first two short films um, right when I quit finance as well, but they were narratives. And uh, yeah, I found these stories. I found first Sofia Montenegro, if you guys remember her in the film, she's, uh, she's just wonderful, I thought. And she spoke so frankly and she was so funny and she seemed so real to me. And she seemed so like, so different than a lot of them, even the democratic female politicians that you know I was familiar with here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I was really searching, I think, in my life for like a different way for women to exist uh, in a professional way, in a political way as leaders, a more humane way. Cause I felt like my own mom worked really hard and had to be kind of a robot and really suffered for it, you know, just lived under constant stress. Um, so, yeah, I've really felt like a so many things in the in these stories when I, when I heard Sophia talking about the abortion ban and sort of this cycle of continuing you know, sort of on the one hand, achieving some level of equality and on the other, these sort of backroom uh, machinations, you know, with like, you know, the men that were supposedly their allies that also were kind of hitting on them or, or really just wanted them out of the, the highest leadership positions once the wars were won. Um, I kind of wanted them more intermediary support. And kind of watching that story and just, I, I picked up Margaret Randall's books on, on Amazon, some old copies uh, one is called Sandino's Daughters, and Sandino's Daughters Revisited, and then uh, Joconda Belli's memoir, uh, which is just wonderful, The Country Under My Skin. And I just felt like they were just so, so incredible. And like Nora Astorga, one had already died, and you know, I, I found the footage and the photos just really spoke to me too, like this electricity. And uh, I found them just so, they looked so alive to me in this way. I really didn't see that many people look growing up outside Chicago. Like I just, they were really sharp too in these interviews. I, they could quote, I mean, they grew up in a country with like such horrible censorship and they could quote angles. I mean, they could quote 
you know, just really obscure philosophy in this really beautiful way. They seem like genuinely idealistic, so well read. And uh, yeah, some of them had just learned to read and were writing poetry in the revolution. It was a really, I'd never seen life lived that way. And um, yeah, with my with my own family's struggles, I think I really wanted an alternative and not just to sit around and like complain with my friends anymore. I wanted to present the world at least, you know, in whatever tiny way that I was able to uh, with some some other vision of what what the, what had already happened even. I felt like it was important as a documentary too because it was real. Women had done these things that I've never heard of in history books. I never read it. I never saw it in the film. Um, and I thought somehow when I saw the footage too, I was just blown away. I was blown away by Dora Maria when she was young and, mm. and the photos of Daisy and the woman pregnant and, you know, you know, putting 847s together, blindfolded, you know, like single moms, lawyers, corporate lawyers, you know, farmers, it just really ran the gamut. And uh, I just thought they were so, so interesting and so cool and so real to me. So, yeah, and the stories were disappearing. You know, they were, at that time, you know, a lot of them had already been marginalized and were enemies of Ortega, uh, who's the current Sandinista male leader of Nicaragua. And yeah, they were really hesitant to talk. It took like six months to even get a response. Uh, which understandably, I mean, they're probably wondering who this random gringa girl is. So, you know, <laughs> they were just like, why is she won't leave us alone? Um, I'm, so very, I'm very glad they did respond because this was, I mean, if, if, the, if listeners are not convinced yet to watch this documentary, I hope like the rest of the interview will do it because this is, this is, it was one of the best documentaries I've ever seen. And I, I'm not a documentary person. I actually am like, when you said this was your first and only documentary, I'm floored. It is, it is exceptionally well done and engaging. Oh my God, that's so kind. I wish <laughs> yeah, you, I totally agree. I wish you were one of the big critics. <laughs> Thank you so yeah. much. I saw it. It a lot. I saw it at the Run at Film Farm in New York and then messaged our group chat and was like, everyone, we have to watch this movie. Aw, God, yeah. that's amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah, and even that it played at Film Forum for us, I can't even tell you how big a deal that was. We were just amazed. And so, you know, you never know when a theater is going to pick up your film, if ever, with a documentary especially, you know, a foreign historical one. And we were just, yeah, so, so excited. And I wish I'd gotten to meet you guys there. <laughs> yeah. How long uh, did it take you to make this film? Yeah, it took, oh, goodness. We started, our first shoot was in April of 2014. And then we premiered, uh, which the final version that you saw at Film Forum was even like a little bit polished after the premiere. But we premiered it in March 2018 at South by Southwest. And then I went back into the edit because of all the stuff going on on the streets today. And so it felt like you couldn't just leave it. Um, I didn't feel right about that. And the women I felt like deserved, you know, especially because there's new terrorist lists in the country and these women are being dormery as house just got raided again, oh you know? And it's, so, yeah, so things have really escalated. Dormery is living underground, you know, in clandestinity again. So I felt like those were important details to, to get in there. And yeah, so it was, I guess it was kind of a four and a half year, almost five year process. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And also we're trying to raise money, you know, of course. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you guys probably, if you talk to doc people, that's kind of a perennial story. Um, yep. You put down, you put down the editing stuff, you get a cut and then you kind of write essays for, you know, six months or a year and try. 
and cut trailers. Um, so yeah, so it ended up taking, I felt like it, yeah, yeah, definitely about four and a half years. Wow, it's a long time. You mentioned that um, some of the, the women were hesitant to talk to you at first, um, and especially given sort of how the political climate has deteriorated. Um, uh, you know, you get into that. I don't want to spoil anything for people who haven't seen the documentary, um, but the direction that Ortega's regime has taken, especially with regard to women, is really depressing. Um, and, no spoilers, though. Yeah, no spoilers. Um <laughs> And so I was wondering sort of how you were able to get um, the subjects of the documentary to like trust you and to see your vision for the film. Yeah, I think at first they just really were very confused. They were like, why do you want to make this? You know, which was so that was like a which, of course, in the U.S., I think we don't you know, it's so common to make documentaries and, you know, people are running around making documentaries about everything. (laughs) You know, so it's not as, as unusual for us, but they were really. Yeah, I think they were a little surprised. Um, and certainly Dora Marie is a very private person. Mm. You know, she's not really someone who discusses her personal life. Sophia as well. Um, I, you know, I don't think she's really done. She'd been in maybe, uh, she'd done news stuff, of course, and, you know, as a famous journalist in the country and, you know, an award-winning journalist. But she hadn't really participated to this extent, I think, in anything. And certainly we asked about her family and these really complicated, mm. you know, her family was split. Um, between the Somoza supporters and and she was a Sandinista. So it was a really, you know, almost like Greek tragedy level story. Um, yeah, her story was heartbreaking. Yeah. Heartbreaking. Like half your family on one side and you on the other. Um, it was heartbreaking to see how that plays out in real life because it certainly happens. I mean, it happens in the U.S. where like families are being torn. I mean, it's not as violent yet anyway mm-hmm. but families mm-hmm. are being torn apart by uh you know just what our politics are now half your family's trump supporters the other half doesn't want to talk to them you know absolutely no yeah, totally absolutely. yeah 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 so i felt like and it's, i think it's just since starting in 2014 it's only grown more and more polarized here i feel like you know it was yeah. so interesting to watch the me too movement emerge and the making of it bernie sanders emerge you know yeah um Really just, you know, a socialist, a democratic socialist winning, you know, 22, 23 state primaries. I mean, in the United States, it was just, I, I couldn't believe it, you know, having started this thing, you know, it, it just seemed like a different world within two or three years, you know, that we were living in, in a hopeful way, in a way that was really exciting and surprising. But yeah, yeah, so they were, they were hesitant. And then this amazing photojournalist named Susan Mizalis, I think was really the person that helped make it possible. Uh, she was a magnum, she is a magnum photographer and um, she's just an incredible artist, like a legend. And her photos of Nicaragua, she was there in the revolution. Um, those blew me away. I mean, they're just magnificent. And so I reached out to her and she was incredibly, uh, you know, communicative and professional. And was like, you know, I think this should be made. I can't believe it hasn't been. And was willing to, I think, you know, I was having met with her. I was able to tell them, you know, that that I'd met with her and that she thought it could be an interesting idea and that we had her, you know, on some level she had helped support us. And then doors started to open, you know, because she was a figure. She's gone back over decades. Susan's very connected to the country still. And Susan introduced me to people on the ground there like incredible solidarity activists, you know, Americans and Nicaraguans that have been there just for decades since the Contra War and since even the revolution. And 
so that that started to open the doors and then we just called everyone we knew and said do you have any Nicaraguan friends and started to hire local people to drive around with us and um basically you know we, we had to knock on a lot of doors you know like it yeah it's not like you know emails are the primary mode of communication so it was like I felt a lot more making phone call after phone call um and just hoping and waiting and going to someone's house and then with a camera and a camera crew and just catching them sometimes too so wow yeah so on a lighter note um i have to mention that i love the soundtrack for this film i think the songs were all just really great fit into the movie really well and I was curious, what was the process like of choosing the music for the movie? Just imagining like that. I think that just seems like such a daunting <laughs> task to have to something yeah. like so, so huge to try and put music to it. Yeah. Thank you so much, by the way. That means a lot to me. Um, yeah. But the music, we it was something we really thought about because for whatever reason, I really felt clear that I didn't want it to be, you know, because I'm a white woman, I didn't want it to be this kind of you know, extremely Latin soundtrack, mm-hmm. um, you know, where I was kind of just, I don't know, I wanted to, to be, to feel also like the international presence. And, you know, it's also the era of punk. It's the era of, you know, and then the eighties, of course, like post-punk and even Nicaragua had its own rock bands at that time, you know, and a lot of Latin America started to have their own like really interesting music. So we wanted to kind of, to combine a lot of things. Um, and so, you know, initially we had a temp track, you know, because while we were editing, um, we didn't really have the money to bring on a composer, of course, at the beginning. And so I would just choose music and our editor would choose songs and we'd see just what felt right. And uh, I personally liked the kind of, yeah, something that was a little bit pulsing, that felt a little rough, um, that kind of pulled you forward, you know, because also we didn't want the energy also to feel, you know, it's a revolution film. And, you know, if it's just classical music or something, you know, these are older women, it just felt like that wouldn't do the stories justice either. So we tried to find that middle ground between ambient and, uh, you know, kind of post-punk and, uh, yeah, and Matt Orenstein was our composer and he's just so great. He's just, he's also from, he lived in Chicago for a long time, for the Chicago people, and he worked at Reckless Records. Do you guys know nice. this? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. And I was—that was my favorite record store. And I was like, "Oh my God, you're hired! You're so amazing!" <laughs> yeah. And he knew everything. You know, I was like, "So we're, you know, we had references that we threw around, like the band Wire, um, or the, you know, just a number of different, certain kinds of, uh, like '80s songs from the like very early '80s and some from the late '70s." And he would just, you know, do riffs on them. And also this, uh, this movie, "The Hour of the Furnaces." Had this incredible score uh, that was an Argentinian revolution film that is just incredible from, yeah, a few decades before the Sandinista revolution. But um, I think it was in the 60s, actually, that it came out. But it was it has this really interesting score that's really a tactile and kind of slow and just builds. So for the Somoza sections, we wanted to kind of look at that and, yeah, do something that would hopefully not overpower, but at, at least give a sense of propulsion. Yeah, I think you nailed it. And the post-punk is so good in the movie. We were just like loving it. Thank you. Yeah, Matt Ornstein, I couldn't believe because we interviewed a number of people and he just hit, he was able to just see it so quickly. I was just blown away. So 
yeah, thanks to him. Um, one of the really compelling things about this documentary is just the way that people describe what it was like to secretly leave home and go live, as they put it, underground, in hiding, where the government did not even suspect uh, at first that they were building an armed force and preparing to attack. There's uh, an instance where a woman talks about having a child in hiding uh, and having to send it away to keep fighting. And then another woman spoke about not being able to tell her family she was leaving and sending her parents a letter that they would only get five days after she was gone. Um, there are just these countless visceral moments like that in this documentary. Um, another one that comes to mind is a scene where someone talks about how you never lose touch with the feeling that today is likely your last day. And the camera just pans over these beautiful grassy hills and the grass is rustling in the wind. Um, I really felt more than, than maybe any, or at least more than a lot of documentaries I've watched that I really got this sense of place and of like being there in that moment when people shared these little details about what it actually was like. And like you said, like um, maybe a lot of these women were private people. How did you get these moments out of your subjects? Like, how did you get there? Um, and I'm also wondering if there are any particularly poignant moments that you had to cut out that didn't make it in. Ooh, thank you so much. So, so many good questions and comments um let's see so <laughs> you're welcome yeah where should I start let's see I guess so in terms of like Monica like when she had to give her baby away um like give her baby to the keeping of someone else essentially and then she was put in prison and wasn't allowed to touch her her you know her little son for a year and uh you know and Dora Maria having to leave at like age you know, she was a teenager and had to leave her parents, who she was very close with and had a great relationship with, um, and not tell them a word because that was part of the deal. If you were willing to give your life, you had to be, you had to, it was a secret. And I just couldn't believe those stories, you know, and she told that, you know, I think they had both spoken with Margaret Randall and I owe a lot to Margaret Randall, uh, who wrote these interviews and I was able, you know, some of those details I knew a little bit about in advance um because of those early interviews that she did with them right right after the revolution and so that i would prepare those specific ones i knew a little bit about um but i didn't know the details about monica not being able to touch her son for a year for example and i can't even imagine i'm not a mom yet you know and i, I just can't even imagine for those of you on this call now who are moms you know having your child ripped away and then being thrown in prison shackled naked and, you know, and men were allowed to see their families. That's, the male prisoners had all these other privileges that they didn't have. And women were raped. Her fellow prisoners were raped. And men didn't have to worry about that. And I just couldn't believe it. Not to mention just the how hard it is on your body to have a baby and hormonally. And you have all of that happening on top of everything else. So I can't even imagine how hard it would be to navigate through that. Yeah. And when I saw that photo of her, if you guys saw the film, you probably remember it where she's saluting and she's like probably seven months pregnant oh, at the yes. front of the line. Yeah. It's just, I felt like that picture said so much. Um, also about the strength, right? Like an image like that just tells you, you know, the way she's standing and like how proud and how straight her back is and knowing what pregnancy is. I've been in rooms with older moms, you know, that just gasp when they see it because they're like, <laughs> Oh my God, you know, which is for me, that's 
that's a lovely moment when people really have a can feel it um and like I, that yeah I actually paused it at that moment like earlier today and I had a friend with me in the room that wasn't watching it with me but I paused it and I was like look at this photo <laughs> of this woman <laughs> who is pregnant like standing in formation with a small army um, because it was just that arresting to see that image. And it, it's not even on the screen that long. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm also thinking of the woman, another poignant moment is um, she's talking about uh, how she told the others, you know, I'm scared to do this. I have a child. I'm frightened. And they told her, um, if you don't do this, your children will have to. Yeah. Uh, Oh my God. And, and, and she was saying, you know, and it made sense to me, we have this obligation and just the strength of like, we're also doing this for our children. Um, whew. Yeah. Like the sense. Yeah. That to me, I was like, wow. I mean, that's also just that sense of the ideals being so, you know, it, it doesn't even really have to do directly with your own selfish need, you know, for a better, whatever, you know, because, for example, Joconda, who said that line, she was an ad executive, you know, who had been a debutante, um, who became a very successful poet, you know, had like this wonderfully interesting. And, you know, she, she this is not someone who had to make a revolution. You know, she was she could have been like a, an executive and done really well in advertising and made this incredible choice, you know, really to sacrifice and her marriage was falling apart. You know, she was really willing to sacrifice that. Her, her job, I mean, any sense of security that she had. Um, you know, really, it's just that that idea that these women gave their lives. You know, it wasn't as easy as, you know, we were like, how do we convey that? That was like a real question. You know, that sense that you're really willing to give your entire life and for this hope that the majority of people's lives and your kids' lives will be better. Uh, you know, because in, in the U.S., we, you know, luckily, as of, you know, for our generation, we haven't really had to make that that decision yet. Um, you know, sort of like live, you know, how, if we're going to die to be an activist, you know, to at least yet. So in this moment, in my generation, at least, it hasn't felt that way. Um, certainly to the level and the extent that those women, you know, going underground, training with weapons, I mean, they knew that they would be killed on the spot, you know, in checkpoints too, they would lift up your, like one of the stories that didn't make it in was Daisy uh, would wear like a dress, but they'd be driving these weapons like in the back of their car, like hundreds of huge guns and bombs, but they'd like dress like a debutante or dress like, you know, like, and he's like with a lot of makeup on and you go to these checkpoints and they would like, if you were wearing long sleeves, they would lift up your your pants legs and your uh, shirt sleeves to see if you had bruises. And then they, sometimes they just kill you on the spot because they knew you'd been training in the grass. Um, wow. And if they saw you had weapons in the car too, you'd just be pulled straight into jail or killed. And jail meant of course, like being raped or tortured. So you knew, you know, none of those options, especially if you're coming from like a, you know, a middle-class family are, certainly anything I ever had to confront. And I was just so amazed by those stories. And of course, not every woman did it either, you know, um, but a lot of a lot of them did. Thousands made that choice. Yeah, I think that goes really well into something I wanted to bring up, which is one of the women who was 
um, interviewed talks about being a teacher and how seeing like her students suffering and not have access to food or supplies like is what made her go from this passive observer on what was going on to wanting to like take action about it, uh, which reminded me of like things we hear from a lot of teachers who are striking now saying like they're doing it for the kids because when you're like in that profession, you really see all the things that are affecting kids. And just as I mentioned, kind of in my intro, there were a lot of connections I was making to like things that we're experiencing now, which is one of the things that I think made the documentary like really hit home as being like, there's a lot of parts of it that are super relatable still. Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, I want to mention too, that Zoe made me think of how I recently found out through my work in education groups in Chicago I'm currently a student teacher um, that sometimes schools here run out of food um, like they don't have enough lunches for the kids that need them. Mm. Uh, and those kids like come to school expecting to get lunches and just don't get them. And there are schools where this like repeatedly happens. Um, so even though the situations aren't comparable at all, um, I was shocked to find out, you know, actual like we don't have enough food. Kids going hungry is not completely unknown to us here in the U.S., Mm -hmm. Um, and so teachers in this country do see children going without, and I think we see a lot of patterns of teachers being moved through just seeing so many families and, and what their situations are. Um, and we have examples of that in Chiapas as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that was one of those moments too, in the film, you know, we, we obviously the editing process was, was so long and it was my first documentary and you guys can only imagine from what you're seeing in all those stories. We we had you know a few iterations and really as soon as we we had that that line about this teacher and and the starving kids you know that she was so moved by them fainting I feel like all of a sudden that could really click with people it it was like for whatever reason you know that was one of those indisputable actually yeah if you are seeing these little kids that are just trying to learn that can even that are fainting from pain and or she would bring them milk we couldn't even get the whole story and essentially she used to bring food from her own house but because their diets were so meager when she would give them milk they would have diarrhea that would be so bad they would get so sick um because they they really hadn't even experienced a lot of food um probably just like beans and rice and so then she just it was yeah for her i think that was a radicalizing moment and I, I, yeah, it's incredible to see the teacher strikes, you know, and, and for this film to be kind of coming to the world in the wake of this, which is just so inspiring and so awesome. Um, so I'm a see, the teacher in Chicago too, and just the stories that I hear. And she teaches in, um, you know, primarily Mexican neighborhood. And yeah, it's, you know, it's, again, it's not exactly comparable, but it's, you see that teachers are confronting a lot of similar issues and taking a stand because, how can you watch this happen to innocent kids? So it's very inspiring to me. Yeah, you see the connection, um, not just with the teachers, but with like how the patriarchy plays out um, here in Nicaragua. Like, like you're talking about the timing of this documentary coming out. It w I think one of the things that made it so compelling was seeing real life women um, having to really fight and defend their freedom uh, from dictatorship and imperialism. And we don't really see that a lot in the U.S. Like we, we don't, you know, our strong female figures here are the ones that want to be president or like CEO or whatever. Mm. So like we don't we don't have we don't see what women like really have had to give up and fight for. Um, 
mm-hmm. so much. They have to do so. I think they have to do so much more than men to fight mm-hmm. for something like this. It's just it's so much harder for us. Yeah, um, and are seen as too aggressive or painted yeah. in very specific ways. You know, as soon as they're they're too ambitious, aka selfish. Yeah. You know, and it's it's so complicated. I watch my mom struggle with it every day of her life. You know, and. Yeah, I, I think it's getting better. I think it's baby steps forward. And but yeah, yeah I go ahead. So. Yeah, I, I think I think probably. Um, I hope. But like, the, so so one of the things I wanted to talk about was again not to give away too many spoilers. I don't think it's possible to give away spoilers for this <laughs> because it, there's just so much in it that, I mean, you really just have to see it to to get everything um, out of it. But so Ortega's Ortega's government which is the ruling government now is, you know, cast as sort of betraying the revolution. Um, and he's done so very particularly by Sophia, who I concur. She's amazing. I love, her. I mean, I loved all of those women, but Sophia was something else. Um, when she was talking about the rights of women in Nicaragua and how there's, there's virtually no rights, how reproductive rights are non-existent, um, how violence against women goes undiscussed. She calls Noriega out as a rapist of his own stepdaughter um, I believe it was a stepdaughter. So we, we see that not only do we like share the same struggle as like workers against an oppressive state, but also as feminists against a patriarchy and that no matter what is laid at the feet of, of a man, he can still have the most power in a country, right? Um, whether it's Donald Trump or Noriega, um, but there's, there's a couple of things that really like were spine tingling in this documentary for me, uh, the first was when we hear Somoza. Somoza's doing some sort of, he's at some sort of party and he's he's being interviewed. Um, and he's heard saying in an interview when being asked like, oh, when do you think you're going to be able to finally put down these these uh, re- re- rebels, right? Like when are you going to find these Sandinistas and, and smoke them out? And he answers and he says, well, the real fight is capitalism versus socialism. And until this mm-hmm. question is resolved, there will always be war between these two sides, which is true. And which is not something we hear American politicians say quite so pointedly. And he was saying this in like the late 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, Although so, I do think it was more common in like the Cold War era for, um, yeah, you know, they, they, Americans. They probably put it in those terms a lot more than, yeah, yeah. back then. Yeah. Um, and they would say, I feel like communism was, you know, they were so good with that buzzword. Yeah. And, and Ortega was, you know, a West Point graduate. Or sorry, not Ortega. I'm getting Somoza was a West Point graduate, um, and so it's like really important to remember his U.S. education. And That's so like interesting. The, I didn't realize it's that. so it's so interesting to me. And there were so many details like that that I wanted to put in the documentary, but would make everyone fall asleep. You know, that were just like, who cares? <laughs> um, thanks so much. It's not already so dense. Um, but yeah, so I found that so fascinating. Like. His English, he knew exactly what to say. Like, oh, yeah. We believe in democracy and Republican government. And these are a bunch of communists, essentially. And we don't yeah, believe in that. Yeah. You know, and he could say. Market, and then they want, you know, dictatorship or whatever. And I'm like, oh, wow, we're having the same discussions today. Like, we're having the same yeah. fights today. And, and like, not just at the national level, but even on the smaller scale. When when you mentioned earlier, Sophia's brother and father were, like, high-ranking members of Somoza's military as she fought, like, alongside the Sandinistas. Um, you know, and, you know, in terms of like bringing the reality of revolutionary class struggle, this movie was very good at bringing it home of what it actually looks like in people's real lives, like what it materially looks like in their lives. Mm -hmm. And 
I wanted to ask, like, what do you hope? I mean, socialism is on the rise in the U.S., uh, which is awesome and wonderful. But like, well, yeah, it's great. And I love it. And but, you know, the capitalist class, they're not going to let let their power go easily. So, you know, you you were showing these themes in there. And I was wondering if there was like, what do you hope that like socialists or leftists organizing in the U.S. sort of learn from this documentary and learn how to view their their struggle and how it might look? And how do you hope it informs their organizing and building of power? Yeah, I really saw, you know, the like the longer I sat with the film, it really did seem to me to be a, like a look at power, you know, and, uh, and all the, the weird forms that power can can take, you know, and using power to serve or power to dominate and control other people. Um, you know, which, which you saw with the men, within the women in the FSLN, you see it with the U.S. trying to control Nicaragua and dominate them. Um, so I think one of the hopes in general is sort of to question the hierarchies that we're born into, you know, whatever they are, a race hierarchy, you know, these weird things that we ingest that are not, that we're taken, we take for granted because you know, we were, this is what we were handed. But I, I thought it was so amazing, you know, that they basically, I, I think the real hope for me was all the reforms that they were able to do. And that like a few yeah. hundred kids could change an entire country of millions of people. Yeah. Essentially. I mean, not, not just with war, which was incredible and mind blowing to begin with, because that's just the insurrection portion of the revolution. But, but even further that they had a number of years of substantial social reforms, empirically verifiable social reforms and health, uh, you know, where those, those same kids that were dying of dysentery, I mean, it, it, huge levels, polio, things that we already had the mechanisms and, and the resources to stop and prevent, we just didn't, wouldn't share them, you know, and we saw malaria campaigns with volunteers, you know, and literacy campaigns that just all the, the people, even housewives, bourgeois housewives in Nicaragua were going out to these villages and young college kids and high school kids to teach the people around their villages, around the whole country, you know, for months to read. And I just thought that was so beautiful and incredible and, and very well organized, by the way, too. You know, they, they were very bright, very young. And it just seemed really that, I mean, obviously the Contra War was so... It came at such a, you know, a perfect time, you know, in a, in a very dark way, you know, because the, so many reforms were going pretty well. On the other hand, some reforms weren't going as well, you know, like the land reform, you know, kind of appropriating certain factories and getting people to work. There were certain things that didn't go as well under the episode. But I have to say the ones that the women were running went really well, like health, like literacy were just really effectively um managed and you know they deployed resources in highly efficient highly effective ways um and they were, those were really the i think the star programs of the revolution for for andorra i mean health for a decade you know people want to i'll meet people and they'll say well you know revolutions never work you know so you know it didn't work you know your movie they never they won for a little while and then well, i was like well you know 10 years is is something yeah. You know, in 10 years to sustain a really impressive, you know, quantifiably successful health program where millions of people's lives are bettered for a number of years is something for a decade. I mean, with volunteers, I mean, it's and, and, and donated equipment. You know, they had by the time of the Contra War, there was an embargo. I mean, they couldn't get anything, you know, and they were still so efficient under Dora Maria by that point, the last five years. Um, it was just obviously a one of the sharpest minds, like Sophia says, of the continent. 
Mm-hmm. And that was evident. She's yeah, she's yeah. just so amazing. And to be in her presence still, I was just like, oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, oh wow. Yeah, um, despite despite the fact that they're so brilliant and so strong and did things that like I can't even fathom. Like I think one of the beautiful things about this documentary is that while I was watching it, I just kept thinking like these are just people. Like the way they told their stories about like coming up in student activism. I'm like these are just people. These are just people like us, you know, like yeah. not that um, I'm comparing us to them, but just the way the way that the documentary humanizes them just made it all the more real. I, th- I think that's an interesting point, Ambria, because I think, you know, there were there were interviews with a few men um, who were also active in the revolution um, and. I, it, I, you sort of got the sense on some level that they, I mean, everybody has a rehearsed version of their own history in some sense, but that <laughs> uh-huh. there was, um, mm. there was less of that, I think, less of that sort of, it didn't feel quite as um, organic, I think. Um, and that was something that I, I also thought would be interesting to hear from you about is how did you decide, you know, which male figures to feature? And sort of how to navigate their inclusion in this film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And actually, I wanted to say, too, I really appreciate um, the point you made about uh, that they seemed like us, you know, because on, on some level, that was the other hope, I think, when I started out. Because even though I'm not like them at all, you know, like we would we would joke around as we were filming, like, which one would you want to be? Like, pick who's your favorite, you know, like, um, <laughs> you know, because okay. we were so we, we all thought they were so great, you know, but. Uh, on the other hand, I felt like they were just so approachable and so humane. You know, the way a lot of great people are, I think they seem just like someone you know already and not like some, you know, faraway figure in, you know, uh, you know, like an ivory tower somewhere that's totally inaccessible and doesn't have experience in common. So I, I really felt like their stories and the way that they approached it was so practical and human in a way that I certainly didn't hear that many female narratives, you know, uh, certainly successful female narratives uh, growing up. And uh, and the next question was males. How do, which males and why, like how we chose to include them? Yeah, I, I, I um, the way that sort of their stories played out on screen um, was really interesting to me. And it felt like there was a lot going on there um, that was, you know, pretty subtly handled. Um, and I was just wondering about sort of your process navigating the, especially the, the men that you actually interviewed, like how you decided to use that footage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so we really, we tried to interview everyone that we could, mm-hmm. I will say that. And a lot of men wouldn't talk with us. Um, so we were really lucky um, for the two ones I think that you see, at least in the present day, were Eden Pastora, who's mm-hmm. at the National Palace, who is really funny and really <laughs> just such a character. And, you know, also really it was it got along with a lot of the women well. And, you know, really even Daisy said he's every time she's in the country with her husband, he'll say, you know, she was one of the best that we had. Oh, to be like, she was amazing. You know, he really said great things about a lot of the women. And unlike 
some of the leaders now, like Ortega mm-hmm. himself, for example, he was a combatant. Like Aden was really in the front lines. He was a medical student. He was like 40 years old. He was one of the ancient ones, <laughs> you know, by that point. Because <laughs> everyone was so young. And he was, so he, I was so glad. I had a feeling too that he would be a really, like someone who really took to the camera. Mm-hmm. And he really was willing to give us time and bring us into a, you know, his office, take us in his convertible. Um, he loved interviews, you know, and, you know, and the women are so humble. It was so amazing to go, you know, from their, their versions of themselves and their histories to his versions. It's just amazing. Um, you know, and he still did say some pretty incredible stuff about Dora mm-hmm. and, yeah. and then also some kind of complicated stuff about women and, you know, and not maliciously though, you know, it was like very, Oh, this is just how it is, you know? And, you know, women are sexier when they're, you know, breastfeeding and, and holding a machine gun. You can't even imagine. And, and, <laughs> and he was like, you can't imagine how beautiful they are. Like, And I was like, oh, you know, like he, he was just having a great time in his office. You know, it was. <laughs> and then he would get his machete out and run around. You know, it was like, really? Yeah, it was. I have to say, like, he was really um, up for it and really, you know, excited. Um and, you know, we felt like, yeah, it was a question, like, do we have men in at all? But mm-hmm. it felt to me like it was important to see a contrast somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, and Eden obviously was, was like a figure, you know, like with Dora. They had been so close at the right. palace, which was that big moment of Dora's life where she's kind of catapulted to not only national but international fame and then becomes also a, a hero, a military hero that's known throughout the world at that point. I mean, Garcia Marquez wrote about her, you know, and it was just this kind of incredible thing. And he could speak to that. We had vintage, we also had vintage footage of Eden. Uh, and, and he's also still a figure in the country publicly. So I felt like, okay, this is good. And I knew Eden was also today allied with Ortega, which I thought would be even more interesting. It was important to us to try to get, because, you know, certainly when we started filming, Ortega's approval rating with the Sandinista party, even though Dora and Sofia and Choconda had left and Daisy as well and Monica um, was still over 60%. You know, they had a really high approval rating. And I thought it was important to have to interview as many women and as many men as we could that were still Sandinistas and Ortegistas to have at least a different, you know, the other perspective uh, represented. Um, so, so that was one way. And then we spoke with Luis Carrion as well, who was a member of the National Directorate. And we, we tried to speak with as many National Directorate members as we could. And he was, he was the only one that was kind enough to give us some time and, and at great risk to himself because he had a job at the university at the time. And saying something on camera could be damning and it could really throw him out of a, a job. So I was very grateful to him. And he was very professional and he was very honest. He was like, look, people just weren't comfortable having a woman in the Directorate. Mm-hmm. Like it or was a man thing. It was like a macho thing, even though Monica and Dora were taking cities and leading their huge battalions. It was still, for whatever reason, they wanted to see it in this other way. So I also felt like it was important to hear that and, and to sort of have them both be allies and sort of at the same time represent this, this other force, you know, to see what the other force was a little bit. Um, you know, we have vintage footage of Tomas Borges, who was one of the founders, touching a young girl soldier's yeah. face. <laughs> you guys remember that? Um, yeah. yeah, and to me that also spoke, you know, when you have one of the founders of the movement tapping a girl on her shoulders and saying, what a nice girl, and touching her face and squeezing it. 
in this, you know, suggestive, complicated, physical way. Like, how could, you know, a young girl feel like an equal? Yeah. Um, certainly the men were just laughing, and, you know, hugging each other and, you know, kind of like throwing their elbows around. And this, these girls are just kind of looking down and really nervous. And I, I felt like that was really important to include, mm-hmm. you know, any moment like that we could find. And we, we searched for, for a while to find anything that we could. Incredible. Yeah. Another thing that I noticed that was felt relevant to today was one of the women was talking about um, how women ended up doing most of the chores, like even while they were training and fighting alongside their male comrades, which I'm putting in scare quotes, because if you perpetuate patriarchal norms, you're not a good comrade. Um, sorry, boys. But anyway, um, but that's something that's been brought up a lot recently in left spaces in the U.S. is like even when you're in spaces that are supposed to be revolutionary or radical, like women are still kind of expected or just assumed to do those sorts of chores. So mm-hmm. I was wondering if that was something you went into the interviews like looking for and asking about, or was it something that just came up on its own because it stood out to the people that were there, obviously? Yeah, I, I think that was something I was really interested in and that I didn't get as much detail of in some of the accounts that I'd read before. So I, I did, and Daisy, people like Daisy were wonderful about talking about these details um, and Dora Maria as well, you know, cause they, they also saw a lot of combat and trained for a long time actively and um, lived beside men, you know, in clandestine life underground for so long. So, so those details were so interesting to me because also have you guys seen the, I'd seen the documentary, the invisible war about rape in the U S military, in the U S military and, and the cover-ups, you know, and that had come out a few years before, and I was just blown away by the amount of horrifying sexual assault for these like young female soldiers in supposedly, you know, the greatest, freest first world military on earth. And and yet, you know, so I, I was very curious if they experienced anything like that. And, you know, they said rape, like those within, within the FSLN, they felt actually most of the women in, of all classes, I mean, women from the smallest villages that were farmers had told me the same, that they never felt more equal in their life than when they were underground, actually. But of course, that there was still this thing. I mean, because, I mean, one farmer, a male farmer actually told me, he's like, women's dignity was like below the ground before the revolution in this country. Like women could barely leave the house in a lot of these villages on their own. I couldn't go out at night alone, you know, and and then you have this radical moment where they're just fighting with machine guns and gaining this kind of this huge amount of respect and sort of power. And then, yeah. And then at the same time, you know, certainly like Daisy said, they were expected to make the coffee and sometimes do the dishes. <laughs> and, yeah. and she's like, it's not that I'm against making coffee, you know, if like that's what's going on. But, you know, the that fact was. Oh my God. That when, when the part of the documentary where they were talking about doing all the chores, I just got exhausted on their behalf. Yeah. Later. Like yeah. I was like, Oh, all the shit that they're already doing. And like, not just the physical stuff, just the emotional and mental shit they have to carry around. Um, they're also doing the housework. Like, I know. And having yeah. babies too. I mean, it's like and so babies crazy. And having babies. Oh, we're the, we're the better gender. Anyway. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It all comes back down to women rule and men drool. (laughs) (laughs) Just science. Um, So uh, that brings me to a question. Um, So at the end of the movie, um, 
I was, I'm sure everybody was left wondering what the feminist movement is like today in Nicaragua. I mean, Sophia talks a little bit about the continuing fight they're having for reproductive justice, but um, I'm just wondering if that's something you want to speak about a little bit. Oh man, yeah, it's a complicated time for Nicaragua right now because of you know all the violence that's broken out since April and the repression. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of a lot of the young feminists certainly, and a lot of the younger and more middle class feminists and activists have left the country. I mean, there's tens of thousands of exiles in, in Costa Rica and abroad. You know that have just they're on lists. They're scared for their lives. Their friends have been in jail. I just talked to a, a young guy at The Hague, Daisy's nephew, who fled to The Hague and was in, in jail, um, you know, up until like a few weeks ago. Wow. And his family didn't know if they'd see him again. Because there's also a number of people disappeared at this point and, you know, hundreds dead. Official counts, well over 300. Um, or, well, I mean, you know, the Ortega government has its own, its own line. Um, so it's very complicated. And in the film, I added just like the, the most recent UN report figures. But I feel like the feminist movement is really a, any activist, anything that's sort of going against the party line is really is a scary, scary time. I think a lot of them were out in the streets for uh, behind these barricades. They called them the trunkes. And you know, so you had these young girls, like sort of the next generation in this really inspiring way, wearing the blue and white flags you know, like running out fearlessly with mortars, mm -hmm. um, you know, some incredible images and, and just really, on the one hand, really sad that it has to happen again. But on the other, like, just incredible that they're so brave and there again. Um, but yeah, so I feel like certainly they've tried to fracture. I think one of the government strategies has been to fracture and to kind of marginalize the movement any way they can. And one way they're doing that is going like house to house and searching um, for, you know, for people by name, anyone in their, in their family, any other students. And this is like, this is like Iraq. This is the stories of my, my, my parents are from Iraq and my dad was an activist against the Ba'athists. And this is, sounds exactly like what they did to find all the activists in that country. I mean, it's just the same everywhere. Really? So they would go house to house? They would go house to house. In fact, they, the reason I'm here is because they went to my dad's house looking for him, but he was on honeymoon with my mom. So they just came here instead of going back. Wow. What year was that? That was wow. 1977. Wow. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It's the same everywhere. Yeah. And the terror, you know, that, that your family experienced, it's like, you know, they're living it right now. And so I've been trying to organize a screening on the border of Costa Rica for like the exile community. We're oh, like working wow. on trying to get that to happen. Um, and it was like a fundraiser to sort of donate back to the Nicaraguan female refugees that are living there with nothing. You know, they had to kind of run away, um, you know, thousands and thousands at this point. So, and the Costa Rican government has been very accepting of them, thank God. You know, so a lot of them are able to meet there in San Jose and on the border you know, and have discussions, you know, they, but recently the journalists and NGOs, a lot of the, certainly anyone opposed to the Ortega party line has been silenced more or less. So, yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, certainly Dora Maria is still giving interviews. I mean, she was just on CNN and Espanol, you know, oh, wow. like, <laughs> and Carlos Fernando Chamorro, she was on his show called Esta, Esta Semana, um, and just giving interviews from underground, undisclosed locations, you know, they're not going to stop. And Good. Sophia is still writing and 
Joconda as well, speaking out. Joconda, I think, was just at The Hague, too, and traveling the world to bring awareness to it. Um, so, yeah, I think it's very inspiring because, um, I, I, you know, I hope that they're able to kind of, yeah, come back together and, and really, yeah, make something, make a big, important change soon. Incredible. Well, I think we're we're starting to get to time now. Um, I was going to ask, well, we can just ask about, um, yeah, the upcoming PBS showing. So Ah, you want to talk about um, how that came about and how people listening can uh, watch the the film themselves? Yes. Thank you so much for asking about that. Um, Also, if anyone's listening in Los Angeles, we also have a theatrical run at the Lemley Theater in Santa Monica, which is a wonderful surprise we're so excited about beginning March 15th uh, through March 22nd. One week only, the Ides of March, it begins. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so we'll have one week there. And then, yeah, so it'll be on PBS. They updated the uh, actual date. So it's going to be Sunday, uh, March 10th. And it's a shorter version of the film because of the one-hour broadcast requirement on um, PBS World Channel. So that will be March 10th. And let me give you the exact time. It is at 10 p.m. Eastern Time, 9 p.m. Central Time, and 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on PBS World Channel, uh, WGBH. And yeah, it will also, in the summer, it should be on Amazon Prime for anyone who can't catch catch either of those two things. So uh, hopefully that's more accessible. And I'm hoping that, yeah, people that have that will just be able to see it and and not have to pay. And, you know, if you have one of those Amazon Prime memberships, which is complicated in its own right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, not awesome. Not Amazon's awesome, not awesome, but awesome yeah. that people can view it online. Right. Awesome that it will be accessible <laughs> somehow, you know, because yeah. that was my hope um, that we'd find somewhere online that it could live. That's and incredible. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. We're really excited about that. And um, PBS is awesome. You know, people in hopefully throughout America, you know, will just be able to flip on a TV, a TV set and see it, which is pretty wild. Um ITVS came on as a co-producer and through them we were able to have the like a, you know the incredible privilege to be on PBS which was a you know a dream really you know because that's something you know even people who can't afford cable can watch so yeah. I watched as a kid so yep. uh, <laughs> hopefully there's a little Kellen out there somewhere staying up too late <laughs> Aww. Yeah. <laughs> their parents don't turn it off right away yeah <laughs> <laughs> not for you kids um, I mean, my kids will watch it. I'm going to make them watch it. Oh, yes. I hope they don't have, yeah. I hope, if it's too scary, though, I understand. No, they'll love it. They'll love it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was one of my hopes, too. I was like, I just wanted to see these women's stories. If I was a little kid, I felt like it would have changed my life to yeah. know these kinds of stories. And so, yeah, that was sort of how how I got started and just kept on in, in those moments where you were like, is it ever going to get done? Like, is there any point? Will we ever have enough money to finish? You know, <laughs> will this ever exist? And it was like, well, it's worth it. You know, if one little girl gets to see it and her life is better than four years of my life are worth it for sure. Yeah, it was it was an ex- exceptionally good. And I'm going to make one last pitch for everybody listening. You yes. really need to watch this documentary. Yes. It is. I mean, <laughs> we, we only touched on like some of the highlights, not even all of the highlights 
Um, every it, it was incredibly compelling to watch and very, very engaging. And yeah, I, if I'd seen something like this when I was very young, it would have changed. It would have changed my ideas about a lot of things, I think. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Yeah, this what was a pleasure. Awesome. Thank you so yeah. much for having me and for getting to meet you all. I really appreciate it. And what a wonderful show. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. This was really cool. We all, if you can't tell already, we all really love the documentary. So oh, thank awesome you. To to about it. Yes, thank you so, so much. Um, that was amazing. I hope everyone watches the documentary. Um, I, If we haven't convinced you, I don't really know what else we could possibly do. So um, anyway, as always, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, at Season of the Bee, on Facebook, is Facebook also at Season of the Bee? It's not really an at on Facebook. Yeah, it's just Season you of the Bitch. You can search for Season of the Bitch. You'll find us. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, email is also at Season of the Bee. Nope, Season of the Bee at Gmail. <laughs> um, you can search us on Patreon. You can give us your money. Um, yeah. Are those all the things you can do? <laughs> yeah, you did so good, Zoe. Yeah, don't forget, uh, we're looking for donations of 420 or more. Um, and if we get 100 new donations of that amount or more on Patreon, uh, we will be doing a high Patreon patrons only 420 event. So send us your dollars. All right. The only thing left is to say goodbye and to tell each other that we love each other because we love each other. <laughs> real right (laughs) guys love me i love you i I need it i love you and only you yes oh yeah well i only love zoe zoe i only love you this is so awkward (laughs) all right well love you love you love you love you bye love you bye the bitch.